All children ages three to six are dismissed for Children's Church, so you can head to the back. I would invite you to bow with me as we prepare to enter God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to once more open your word together. We pray as well that you would open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts to receive your word today, that we could hear from you. I pray that you would speak through your word, through me, your servant, and by your spirit, Lord. Would you impress your word and what you would have for each one of us to take away from here today? Would you press it in our hearts and give us uh, your strength and your faith and your grace to live it out as you will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now this morning we have already lit the shepherd's candle, the third candle of Advent. And if there's one scene that seems to perhaps shout the Christmas story to us more than any of the others is the famous story of the shepherds on the hillside just minding their own business like any other night tending their sheep when suddenly that angel appears to them and a whole host of angels fill the sky. And we're so familiar with that story and that setting that I'm sure right now you could think of perhaps yourself in a Christmas pageant years ago if some of you are a little bit on the older side or perhaps some of you on the younger side will say, yeah, that's my role this Christmas as I'm putting on the bathrobe, I'm one of the shepherds. But it's so familiar to us that sometimes we overlook it. But this morning, we are going to look at these familiar characters and learn four lessons from their part in this incredible story. Now, when we look at them, one of the things we notice is that the shepherds don't typically have a whole lot of lines. In fact, in the account in Luke itself, they're only given one line in the entire narrative. And that line was, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. That's their one and only line. So I ask the question, who were these shepherds really? What, what were shepherds like in those days? What can we learn about them from their setting and their time and culture? And so in order to maybe understand them a bit better this morning, we're going to fill in a bit of context about what shepherding was like in those days in Israel. So turn with me to Luke chapter 2 and verse 8, and we'll look at this familiar passage once more. Now verse 8 begins this part of the story saying, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now the very first thing I want you to take note of is that the shepherds were living out in the fields with their sheep. Living, not not just um, out there for a nine-to-five shift, Rather, this was a way of life for the shepherds. A very rugged way of life, lived primarily outdoors for a long part of the year. Their only shelters out there in the hillsides were actually caves carved into the hillsides along uh, Bethlehem. They dated all the way back to the time of King David when he was a shepherd outside of Bethlehem as well. And it was quite interesting when we were in Israel a number of years ago, we got to visit some of those caves. And it's incredible to think of the amount of history that those caves have seen in the hillsides of Bethlehem. And so that would have been the only opportunities for those shepherds to get out of the elements from time to time would have been into these caves. Now, even today in modern Israel, 
This way of life of shepherding is still uh, plain to be seen if you've ever been there or seen pictures. There are still flocks of sheep grazing on the hillsides outside of Bethlehem. There are still lone shepherds out watching over them. Many of them look like they come straight out of the Bible. The clothing doesn't look that different. The, the only exceptions will be you can see some of the teenage shepherds wearing Adidas tracksuits and talking on their cell phones while they're watching the flock of sheep. So that's perhaps a modern nuance. But other than that, the way of life is very much the same. Now, one of the things that we could point out from that time is that when you live outside, and particularly you live with sheep, you smell like sheep. And so, for anyone who has worked with livestock, particularly anyone who has worked, say, with pigs in an enclosed place like a pig barn, I have had that experience in my life, that honor, and Leanne can attest to this, that when I was a pig farmer for a, for a season in my life, there's a certain smell that you take on, a certain aura that kind of seeps into your pores and specifically into your hair that uh, no matter how many times you shampoo after you've been in the, the hog barn all day, if it's still wet and you get right up and smell it, you can still catch that lingering aroma of, of that smell that you take on. Now, this is in modern times, of course, where we have the luxury of hot showers and shampoo and all of those things. But back then, showers didn't exist. And so, the, the very few times that shepherds would have the luxury of getting themselves clean might be in a creek somewhere. But to actually get completely clean, the only opportunity would be to do that when you went into town, into the city. And there would be the ritual Jewish bathing pools called mikvahs. Uh, archaeologists have uncovered mikvahs everywhere. This was very common in that time in Israel because it was a, a place of ceremonial cleansing, which you had to do for a great number of things, including coming into direct, direct contact with livestock. And this ceremonial cleansing in a mikvah, in one of these bathing pools, was required to do a great number of things, including and especially entering a synagogue or the temple in order to worship or present an offering. Now, there was one problem here for the shepherds, and that was because they lived with sheep and because they were so smelly and generally filthy, most of the people in the towns didn't really appreciate it when the shepherds came in and dirtied up their pools. And so it was kind of a stigma that they would be very strongly discouraged from making use of these mikvahs. And they might, you know, have a shepherd's mikvah down somewhere that they could make use of, but not the ones in the middle of town, the, the shepherds would be very much frowned upon and, and barred in some instances from using them. Now, this reminds me a little bit of growing up. And growing up as a kid, Saturday night was bath night. Does anyone else have that same ritual, right? Saturday night is bath night. No matter what, that's for sure the night you're going to have a bath. Mom's going to see to it. And so... When I was quite young, the bathtub would only be filled up one time. And then everyone, from youngest to oldest, would take turns bathing in the same water. Now, there were reasons for this, of course. You know, the hot water tank, I think, could only do one fill, and the well was limited on how much water and the amount of time. So 
Whatever the reasons were, youngest to oldest, everyone bathed in the same water. Now, you might imagine that especially in the summertime when us kids would be playing in the dirt and running around barefoot, by the time it got to the older ones' turns, well, the water wasn't exactly crystal clear anymore. Does anyone else identify, or is this just us? Okay, there's a few hands out there. You know what I'm talking about. So, this is the same kind of mindset that the people in town had with the shepherds coming in and dirtying up their water. And so this meant that even if they could somehow get time to have someone else cover for them to watch their flocks and they can go into town for a bath, they were often hindered from doing so. Now, this not only meant that they were physically unclean the vast majority of the time, but it also meant, much more importantly, that they were considered spiritually unclean. And the reason for this is that according to the strict Jewish religious laws of that time, due to their close contact living with sheep, a shepherd was considered ceremonially unclean. And so unless they could perform that ceremonial washing in a mikvah, which the priests also added uh, the additional demand that wasn't in Scripture, but they added this as an additional requirement, that this ritual cleansing had to be done a full day ahead of time before you were allowed to enter the synagogue or the temple. So it wasn't good enough to do it, you know, the morning of. You had to do it a full day ahead of time. And so this just added an additional requirement for the shepherds, that they needed to have a few days set aside where they could go in to do the ritual cleansing. And while the sheep weren't just going to watch themselves. And so, because of all of these factors stacked against them, it was very difficult for a shepherd in that time to enter the temple. And therefore, it was very difficult, if not impossible, for them to go and give the required sacrifice to the Lord to have their sin atoned for. And so now are you beginning to see the problem that these shepherds faced, that there was this stigma attached to them because of their occupation, because of their livelihood, that not only were they physically smelly, physically unclean, people looked down on them as being spiritually unclean. No one wanted to associate with the shepherds. And so they had so many religious and societal barriers stacked against them that it actually kept shepherds in a perpetual state of being considered spiritually unclean unclean, looked down upon, and as the centuries passed by, this was sort of the mindset that the shepherds took on. That was more or less how they viewed themselves, that, that they were unworthy, that they were a low class, not worthy of being considered uh, religious or, or, or acknowledged by God in any positive way. And so when we consider this context now, And then if you were to perhaps have the opportunity to go to that time and ask any Jew who knew the prophecies of the coming Messiah, and you were to ask that Jew, just take a random polling of any one of them, who do you think God is going to send his angel choir to in order to announce the birth of his Messiah? Who are you going to to pick as the first choice of God's angel choir arriving at? I guarantee you that the vast majority would say something like, well, we'll probably descend above the temple and the angel choir will announce it to the priests and the Pharisees first, right? Because they're the top dogs in the religious spectrum. Of course, the choir would go there first. And I guarantee you that no one would pick shepherds or hillsides. They wouldn't appear anywhere on their list. And if you asked, it would probably be 
at the bottom. However, as we read this text and as we consider the setting, it seems that God has a special affection for shepherds. Think back through the Old Testament and consider Abel, the one whose offering was received and commended by the Lord. He was a shepherd, the very first of them. Moses, who led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he spent 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd. And of course, David, Israel's greatest king and the writer of most of the Psalms, was of course a shepherd. Furthermore, we see that God identified himself as a shepherd, such as our call to worship, Isaiah 40, verse 11, which says of the Lord, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. And so while most of the Jewish people of Jesus' day at the time of his birth, most of them looked down upon shepherds, it's clear that God did not. God himself says, I have the heart of a shepherd. And and I have a special place in my heart for shepherds because they know me, that I care for my sheep. I carry them close to my heart as I carry each one of you. And so God himself set the example by not sending his angel choir to the temple, though he could have, not sending it to the palace or to some important place, to some seemingly important people, but God sent his angelic choir to a hillside outside of Bethlehem to announce it to, yes, smelly shepherds. And in this action, God was making a very important statement, which leads us into the first of our four lessons this morning from the shepherds. Lesson number one is this. Jesus did not come only for the high and mighty. Jesus came for the weak and lowly. Now the truth is that some of us view ourselves in much the same way that the Jewish society viewed shepherds. Social misfits, unclean, unlikable, and perhaps spiritually unworthy is how some of us might view ourselves. We might think of ourselves as certainly no one special enough for anyone, let alone God, to take a personal interest in me, to take a personal interest in my life. I'm no one important. For why would God care about someone like me? But I want you to listen to the words of Jesus, who notably also called himself the good shepherd. Luke 12, 6 and 7, Jesus said, What is the price of five sparrows, two copper coins, yet God does not forget a single one of them, and the very hairs on your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid, you are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. And so here we see God sent his angels to, yes, lowly shepherds. Then we see Jesus himself was born in a lowly stable, then grew up in lowly Nazareth, worked as a lowly carpenter, and then befriended the lowliest outcasts of society, and then taught that you, you are both seen and incredibly valued by God. God sees you. God values you. God knows everything about you, even the number of hair on your head. Yes, you are incredibly valuable to God, even if you might be in the lowliest rung of society. You matter. Your soul matters. 
right now, as lowly as you might feel about yourself, God has incredible value for you and incredible worth. Now, you might have a hard time believing me right now, but it makes it no less true. The angel choir is evidence of this, that God wanted to make a statement right from the beginning. Jesus had come for everyone, the lowliest of the low. Yes, he came for you, no matter how you think or feel about yourself. God values, values you. And he carries each one of us close to his heart as a shepherd. That is the first lesson from the shepherds we can learn this morning. Now on to lesson number two. Listen and respond to God's word. Let's follow the shepherd's example by listening and responding to God's word. Luke chapter 2, 9 to 11. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Do not be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Now the basic meaning of the word angel is messenger. And so here we see that this messenger of the Lord has come to deliver God's word, God's message about Jesus directly to the shepherds. Now, I think I'm safe in saying that most of us haven't seen angels in this traditional sense where the glory of the Lord shines around us and we fall down sore afraid, terrified. Although the Bible also tells us that angels can appear as regular people and that, in fact, some people have entertained angels completely unaware of it because they appear to be a regular person. So perhaps some of us have entertained angels without knowing it. However, in this glorious sense, I think most of us have not seen angels that way. At least I haven't. And if you have, I would love to hear about it. But I think we're safe in saying these shepherds had never experienced it before. This was their first time. And so understandably, an angel appears, glory shines around them. They are terrified. Now, in this setting we got to remember a couple of things. The first is, this is the first time the shepherds have ever experienced an angel in this, in this way. It's just a normal night. They're out on the hillside. They're not expecting anything extraordinary to happen, so it's completely unexpected. And now here they are told this message from God of incredibly powerful and good news. Now, here I'll shift a little bit, because in this same way, Though there may not have been an angel or God's glory attached with this, I think all of us present here this morning are here because at some point in our lives, someone told you this incredible good news, right? It may not have been, like I said, in this way that you fell down flat on your face because it was an angel telling you, but someone told you the good news about Jesus. Now, it might have been a parent, a Sunday school teacher, a camp counselor, maybe it was through your pastor, a youth pastor, a friend, or just a next-door neighbor. Think back. Who was it who first told you about Jesus? Who first told you the good news? Who was your messenger? I think back, and I'm sure that it was my mother. And by the grace of God, I received many more messengers after her, including some of you here in this congregation. Some of you were the messengers God used to bring the good news of Jesus to me. 
Who was your messenger? Who did God use to let you know about Jesus? You see, the fact is, no one just stumbles into faith in Christ. However, sometimes it appears that way, but even when it appears that way, there is always, always a messenger involved. Famous story of such a case was a man named Billy Sunday. You might recognize his name because he was so iconic. He was first a professional baseball player with the Chicago White Sox, which were known as the Chicago White Stockings in that time. And one Sunday in 1886, he and some of his fellow players had been out for a few drinks at a bar. And following this, they were wandering through the streets of Chicago, where suddenly Billy Sunday heard a street preacher. And then following the street preacher, he heard them singing some of the old-time hymns that his mother used to sing when he was young. And so drawn in by the singing, he went over and listened, and he heard the songs, and then he heard the message, and while the rest, as they say, is history. He believed the message. He responded in faith. He was saved, and Billy Sunday went on to become the great evangelist of his era. It's estimated that over the course of his many years of ministry, he preached to nearly 100 million people in person, recording some 1 million plus converts who responded in faith to the message of the gospel. And so even though it might appear to us as just a, a random coincidence that Billy Sunday was just out on the street and he just stumbled into the faith, even there, it was God's will that he would hear his word that day from that street preacher, the hymns having drawn in because a seed was planted by his mother singing songs years earlier, and the rest is history. Everyone needs to have a messenger. Everyone needs someone who comes and brings God's word to them, just as the messenger brought the word to the shepherds, who then responded in faith to believe the word and to respond accordingly. As Romans 10.14 tells us plainly, how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have not heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And so it was on a hillside that the angels came and told the shepherds the good news. The shepherds listened, but they didn't stop there. Luke 2.15 and 16 continues, when the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go. Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened that the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried to the village. They found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in a manger. Take note, something that's so obvious to us that we can just overlook it, but don't miss the fact that the shepherds both listened and responded to God's word. It seems absurd to us to even consider that the shepherds could have acted in any different way. Right? Here's an angel bringing good news. But consider that they could have. They could have heard the message and all just looked at each other and said, well, that was interesting. But these sheep aren't going to watch themselves, so I guess we're just going to stay right here. They could have done that. That was a choice available to them. But of course they didn't. Instead, they looked at each other and just with big eyes said, let's go. Let's see this thing that the Lord has told us about. We have to experience it for ourselves. And in this, we see that hearing God's word 
is not the same thing as responding to God's word. Yes, in order to respond, we have to hear, but it's not the same thing. Hearing alone is not sufficient. There must be a response. Let me give you an example of this from the book of Acts. There in Acts 26, Paul has been hauled before the authorities once more, as was often the case. One of these authorities is named King Agrippa. They've arrested him for preaching about Jesus and causing an uproar in the city, as was typical because the pagans didn't like that he was turning them away from worshiping their gods and towards Jesus. And so here he is before King Agrippa, and he says to him in Acts 26, verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And this was following him sharing his entire testimony of how Jesus had met him on the road to Damascus. And so he puts the question to King Agrippa, do you believe this? I know it. I see it in your eyes. I sense it in your spirit. You are at the point of faith. Do you believe? And then King Agrippa looks at him and responds, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. Almost. He had listened. He had heard. It's the Apostle Paul preaching with the typical zeal and power that he was known for. And King Agrippa says, I'm almost there. But that's where it stops. And the record never indicates that King Agrippa moved beyond almost to actually responding in faith. It's not the same thing, hearing and responding. Yes, we must hear in order to respond, but it's not the same. Hearing has to be followed by a response of faith, just as it was with the shepherds. And so, James 1.22 makes it plain to us. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. And so you see, for the shepherds, that meant hearing the word from the angel and then physically responding by leaving their flocks behind and going to Bethlehem to find this newborn Messiah. And may we follow their example and do the same. May we not only listen to God's word and so fool ourselves into thinking that it's the same thing as responding. No, James says, do what it says. Respond in faith. Move your feet. If God's word says go, then let's be like the shepherds and say, let's go. Not, oh, that was interesting. I'm going to sit down and keep doing what I did before. There is a difference, my friends. May we learn this lesson from the shepherds to hear God's word and respond. Now, of course, the shepherd's story doesn't end. Verses 17 and 18 continues. After seeing him, that is Jesus lying in the manger, After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And this moves us into lesson three from the shepherds, which is they told others about Jesus. They told others. I love this part of the story. They're so excited they could not contain what had happened and they wanted everyone else to know about it. You know, isn't that our natural response? You know, when something good happens in our life, something exciting. You know, something, you know, you've, you've, you've got a promotion at work. You know, something great happened. You, you, you have a, a birth announcement. You've had a new grandchild. You want to tell people. It's exciting. It's good news. 
And this is how it should be for Christians, should it? Should it not? If we're excited about Jesus, then like the shepherds, this is good news for sharing. And it shouldn't be something that we have to twist people's arms behind their backs to do. No one had to tell the shepherds to go out and tell others about Jesus. This was a natural response to their excitement at what they had experienced. This is how it ought to be for us as followers of Christ. Having personally received his love, that we desire to spread that love to others by telling them about this new life that we have found in Christ. Now, of course, when we do this, just as with the shepherds, some may receive uh, that news with excitement, which is what we look for. Others, perhaps just with curiosity, oh, that's interesting, why are you so excited? Others may be indifferent to it, just like, whatever, you're just some religious nut job, I'm going to dismiss you. And others might be hostile and say, hey, I'm, I don't want to hear it, you better be quiet or even get antagonistic. There's all sorts of responses that you could receive when you tell others about Jesus, but I don't think the shepherds were too worried about that. You know, when you read that story, they were just telling whoever wanted to hear, whoever came in earshot, they were telling them whether they wanted to hear it or not. And so it is with us. We are to act as God's messengers towards others. Having received his message, we are now to be messengers And it's God's will that we, you and I, turn around like the shepherds to tell others. In fact, we know this is his great commission to us, to be like the shepherds, those first evangelists. And regardless of the cost to us, regardless of what people might think of us or our message, we tell others about him. This past week, I received a letter from the Gideons in which they shared the true story of a man who came to faith in Christ in a Muslim-majority country. In earlier letters, the the Gideons wrote that in order to protect this man's identity, they had identified him only by his codename of John. And it was there, they write, to protect him as he risked everything to share the good news about Jesus within his Muslim country. But then they write, John doesn't need a codename anymore. His real name is Dia Blau. We wish we could tell you he doesn't need it anymore because he's safe now. But that's not the case. Dia found Jesus four years ago, and since then he's been arrested multiple times for sharing his faith, a faith which remains steadfast, a faith which gave him the courage he needed at every arrest and every night spent in prison. In 2019, he was arrested by his government for leaving the Islamic faith. During the trial, Dia was denied representation, and upon sentencing, had a sign posted on the front door of his cell detailing his crime and outing him as a Christian. The same sign was affixed to the door of his home. Now anyone associated with him was in danger. Then on September 20th, when he still refused to denounce his faith, our brother in Christ, Dia Blau, in front of his community and family, was executed publicly. Yet despite this violent oppression... They continue to share their faith in secret and meet together in underground churches, proclaiming the name of our Lord with hope only he can provide. What a powerful testimony of just one man who, in the face of incredible personal danger and cost, diligently followed the example of those shepherds. He kept telling others about Jesus. When I read this story, I also find it so humbling When I hear of such a bold faith, 
Because I think how often have I had opportunities to tell others about Jesus, but I didn't. And then I think, what were my reasons in that moment for passing up that opportunity? And often it was just simple fear that the message might be rejected. Or that they might think me strange. Or something to that effect. And so I keep my mouth shut. But I thank God for his grace. And so I continually pray that he would grant me greater boldness. To not worry about the cost. To not even think about it, but to share his word with others as clearly and boldly as possible at every opportunity. Because isn't it the message that saved our souls? Isn't it the message that is the only one that can save any man's soul is the message of Jesus Christ? And how can they receive it? How can they believe it unless someone tells them? And so may we pray for greater boldness to be like the shepherds, to be like Dia Blau, a dear brother who has gone before us, setting an example that regardless of the cost, the good news of Jesus is news that is worth sharing. And this leads us into our final lesson we can learn today from the shepherds, which is this. Lesson number four, allow Jesus to change our daily lives. Allow him to change our daily lives. Luke 2 verse 20. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Now, did you notice the change that happened in these shepherds? The night is gone, you know, the euphoria and all the excitement is now behind them. And yes, they go back to shepherding. You know, that that was still their way of life and their livelihood. They go back to their sheep, but notice their whole attitude has 